Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today, I have my guest as my guest, Peg McKettrick, or Margaret, but she goes by Peg. She is a board member of Save the Children since 2017. But above and beyond that, she's a finance person. She was a founding partner of Liberty Square Asset Management, a fund manager focusing on non-U.S. equities. She was previously a partner in the leading international equity division of Grantham, Mayo, and Van Otterloo, or GMO. She began her investment career as an analyst for the Common Fund for International Investments. She is the former CEO and currently a member of the board of GMO. She also served on the Investment Committee of Partners Healthcare System, and she has served on the boards of Providence College, the Wheeler School, our sister school, and Dartmouth YMCA. Peg joined Save the Children in 2017 on its board and now serves on the executive and audit and risk committees, I should say. She chairs the finance committee and is a member of the investment subcommittee. In 2019, she joined the board of Save the Children International and is on the finance committee and chairs the audit and risk committee there. We're gonna talk about Save the Children today, both domestically and internationally, but first and foremost, welcome to the caring economy, Peg McKedrick. Thank you, Toby. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. From the time I met you just a few weeks ago, I was struck by your, your engagement in such important matters as children, while also being incredibly schooled in the world of finance. I wonder if you might, as we typically begin, tell us a little bit about your career journey, how you got where you got, maybe some of the pivots and um, lessons learned along the way. I was really interested in psychology when I was an undergraduate, and I was I was majoring in psychology and business management and thought I would try to find some kind of a career, uh, maybe in industrial psychology, which is now called you know some form of HR. But then I realized that you had to get a PhD to do that, and I really did not want to spend that much time and effort and money on education. And I, at the same time, I kind of discovered the stock market. And I'm not sure exactly how that happened because it had been a really bad time for stocks. You know, the, the inflationary period of the 70s into the into the super high interest rate times into the 80s, et cetera, the markets have been doing really poorly. I became really interested in that and kind of from a behavioral point of view, like thinking about it from psychology, which has become a much more relevant way of thinking about the markets more yes. recently. But back then in the 80s, it wasn't so much. I was able to find the Common Fund. The Common Fund was set up with a grant from the Ford Foundation. So it was a nonprofit that managed money for uh, endowments and foundations. At the time, they were interested, a really small organization, but they had a fabulous board of, of all the top um, endowments like Yale and Harvard. And they were interested in creating a pooled fund for smaller schools to invest in non-US stocks, so in foreign stocks. I was hired while I was working on my graduate degree in finance to go out and, and look for outside money managers who they would then fund and create this investment opportunity with. Mm. It was a fantastic job. And it, this was an area that nobody knew anything about. It was, it was really new at the time. So it was really exciting. It was also incredible timing because just about then, foreign stocks started to really do well. Foreign currencies started to do well versus the dollar. So it was just, it was just a wonderful timing and luck mm -hmm. on the part of the Common Fund, on the part of me, just to show up at that moment in time. One of the 
firms that we hired was a firm called Grantham Mayo Van Otterloo in Boston. So GMO was doing something very different than all the other firms that I was looking at. They were focused on using quantitative analysis. They were looking at companies that were not well-known, that were smaller, that were incredibly inexpensive relative to the stock market uh, ranges of valuations. This was really intriguing to me because all the other managers I was looking at tended to think in big picture, like, is Japan going to grow this year? Is Germany going to grow? But this firm was didn't care about the macro, was really looking at the micro. How are companies doing? So I ended up joining them and spent 12 years uh, working in the international equities division and had an absolute blast. This was just a fun, fun time to be investing in foreign stocks. It was it was pretty much the Wild West, but it was a lot of fun. So I did that until the end of 96. I took a little time off. And then I started my own firm called Liberty Square that you mentioned, Liberty Square with two other partners, a majority women-owned hedge fund, which was really rare at the time, which was 1998. It's still rare. We still don't, I, I hardly know any uh, female uh, hedge fund managers, but um, we be did quite well during this period that we ran the funds. We had four different funds that we managed. At the peak, we were managing over $7 billion. This was also you know, an incredible time to be able to be both long and short in the markets. And then I was asked to join the board of, of my old firm, of Grantham Mayo, GMO. And there was a turnover with this, the previous CEO, and they asked me to step in as the interim CEO, which I did for about 18 months. And then we hired this fantastic new CEO who's now been there for five years, and yeah. I'm still on the board there. So that's that's my finance side. First, I want to go back to those sort of college days. I guess you were at Providence College. You say you sort of don't know how, but you got interested in the stock market. But can we explore that a little bit more? Because as a young woman in a liberal arts college, what did sort of draw you into what has, I think, stereotypically been a male-oriented profession? I was on the school's finance committee. So they had two students representatives that were on the finance committee. And it really was all about the budget of the school and how they managed their endowment. And, and it kind of piqued my interest. I was taking finance courses anyway, but specifically equities uh, in the stock market, it was really just from doing a lot of reading. So I, you know, I was reading the Wall Street Journal and Barron's, but I was really, again, interested in the psychology of what made the markets move mm -hmm. and found a couple of books back then that, you know, kind of classics of, of market manias and things like that, that really encompassed, you know, human behavior. And then when you move forward to today or the past, say, 15, 20 years, we both have observed that women are underrepresented in yeah. certain hedge funds, but in, in finance in general. And what's that about in your estimation? I kind of wish I knew. I mean, every time I'm asked to speak at a, you know, uh, 100 women, it used to be called 100 women of, of hedge funds. And now it's been changed to 100 women of finance because there aren't enough women. Whenever I'm asked to give a talk, I always say, you know, if you're going and they're and they're always packed these group meetings with women who want to know, you know, how can I advance in this career? And, you know, they're really interested and passionate. But I always give the same advice, which is if you are working at a money management firm, be a money manager. If you're working at a law firm, be the lawyer. You know, don't be the helper. Don't be on the marketing side. Don't be on the operations. Not that there's anything wrong with being on the marketing and operations side, if that's your passion, if that's what you're good at. But if you really love investments, 
you know, go straight for actually managing the money. Uh, women tend to be more risk averse, but have better long-term performance. That's been proven in lots of studies because of how they think about risk. Um, they tend to not have their egos on the line as much. You know, focusing on the fact that your performance is measured quantitatively. So how you do is not based on if somebody likes you or if there's bias. It's about your numbers. And that's great for women because, you know, you can you can not necessarily play golf with people or, you know, do the normal schmoozing that is required in some companies. It, you really can focus on what you do best, which is managing money. But what about mentors along the way? Were there were there men or women who said to you, you got a knack, kid, this is really good for you, or you need to th think this a little differently or try this out? I mean, there must have been some good coaching that came somewhere along the way or mentors. What happened with my career is that I just happened to be attracted to mentors or to uh, bosses who I thought were really good people. Um, my first boss at the Common Fund, you know, really cared about the endowments and foundations that he was helping. Mm -hmm. He also opened the door, said, jump in the deep end of the, of the pool here. I mean, there were no restrictions. You just go ahead and do this. And the same thing at Grantham Mayo, the, the partners there, the three three founding partners, they didn't care. They They were like, you know, there is go do your best. And it was really wide open. So there weren't a lot of restrictions and that flexibility was really helpful to me. So you got to pattern your behavior in a certain sense by leaders who you respected, who you felt moral and responsible. Yeah. If any pearls of wisdom do you have for those who have a different kind of boss, <laughs> like yeah. you stay the course in an organization where it feels toxic or you know, I think there's something you've said for elbow grease and paying one's dues. I think that's a, we can talk more about that later, about a challenge for young people today who are too quick to swipe left, swipe right. Or, but at the same time, you don't want to be in an abusive or a toxic setting. And how do you get perspective on that when you're in the deep end? It's complicated because every situation is different. You know, not all my experiences with all the people I worked with were perfect or wonderful. Sure. You just needed to know how to pivot and know how to 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 work with difficult people. Mm -hmm. And no, you don't quit at the first sign of difficulty. I can remember some really tough times my first couple of years at Grantham Mayo where kind of because there were no guardrails at all, like I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be doing there. Yes. And funny because uh, there's a partner there now who's a, a who is a little younger than me that started after me who's also thrown into this like very amorphous like what's your job he had no idea and he sat there for nine months wondering if he even had a job like no one gave him an office no one gave him a stapler it was just like go find your way and that can be daunting and it, it can it can be hard you know so you do have to sometimes just rally yourself and keep going and just find find your path. Do you um so then let's shift to the the nonprofit world and parallel to your career in finance, you grow a bit into the nonprofit space and join the board of Save the Children. Tell us a little bit about that. What was the background or what led up to that? Working in the finance world, I loved it. I loved uh, my firm. I love my partners. We had a really good time. We had great clients, and we felt like we were doing something good for the world. We were managing money for a lot of really good schools and we knew that this money was going towards you know education and helping kids you know go to school that couldn't necessarily afford to and these kind of values were really important to me and they were in both our firm at Liberty Square and Grantham Mayo is very much 
focused on that. And again, the focus on the client and what's best for the client was absolutely critical. And there were times in Grantham Mayo's history, multiple times, where they said, they came out and said, we think the markets are expensive and you should take your money out. And that meant that there was going to be less in the bottom line for Grantham Mayo when people took their money out because they weren't necessarily long short. You know, they they actually were mostly long only at that time. But they did that because they wanted the best for the clients and they did it every time they sometimes they were usually early um, and they would have to deal with with the repercussions of that. I was always impressed with that mentality uh, when it came time to me thinking about, well, what's next? Because at the point that I turned over management of Grantham Mayo to the new CEO, I knew I was going to have a lot more time. By that time, we had we had uh, closed Liberty Square. We were finished with the hedge fund. We were the three of us who were the founding partners there. Just wanted to do other things with our life. Wanted more freedom, time, etc. And that's when I was introduced to Carolyn Miles, who was the CEO of uh, Save the Children U.S. at the time. And she was so inspiring, and we had so much in common, and so much to talk about. One lunch led to joining the board. But I have to say, I was having no understanding of nonprofits and being in the corporate world, I really was a fish out of water for a while. I, I found it bizarre, you know, just like how do you run this place? Like a huge the rigor is not there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was just like, what is this? But I met some amazing people, both both inside the firm and on the board. Um, Koki Roberts, wonderful Koki oh, Roberts. I love Koki Roberts. She sat next to me on my first board meeting and I never laughed so hard in my life. She was just so much fun. And we ended up getting stuck in airports together and we became friends. And, and we ended up starting this philanthropy group within Save the Children. She helped me. It was, it came out of my lack of knowledge of how this, you know, nonprofit world worked. Because I would ask, like, I don't understand, like, I really think you should be getting high net worth people to be giving more money. You know, why are they endowing chairs and putting their names on buildings when they should be saving kids? Like that seems so much more important. Are we, why don't we have more high net worth? And I was like, I really think women are making these decisions, by the way. And I would make all these comments. And finally, the powers of be saved was like, oh, really? You know something? Go ahead and do it. So <laughs> we ended up creating this group called a hundred strong. I think that that's how we met because I had just had an assembly of the of the women of a hundred strong. And these are women who have made very substantial commitments to save the children who want to be part of a community and have conversations and learn from one another, do good in the world. Save lives, lives, not yeah. And so that was something that that we started. It ended up being Koki, another woman named Catherine uh, Oppenheimer, Gabriella Hurst, the designer. And myself, and we created this thing, and it's now just blown up. It's done done incredibly well. I want to plant the seed now. We'll come back to it because I want to stick with the nonprofit. But when we look at how red and blue states are now forcing different pension funds and and organizations to invest, not invest, how do you juggle all that kind of pressure? It just seems so unfortunate to say the least. It is because again, politicizing things that are irrelevant to the political process makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. So when I look at ESG, environmental, social, and governance, in my normal investing process, I consider all the risks of a corporation. Sure. And the risks include what kind of environmental impact are they having? What kind of social impact do they have? What is their governance like? These things are all important to me as an investor. 
regardless of without even having some ESG mandate or anything like that. I'm not going to invest in a company that's poorly managed, that's, you know, killing its people or buying its products, whether they're tobacco or whatever. You have to look through these things and say, well, does this make sense? And I think the important thing is to, to, to think about everyone who's impacted. It's not just the shareholders. It's not just the employees. It's the customers and it's the suppliers, et cetera. And all of this has impact on what the long-term results of the organization will be. I think that's a great way of thinking. I, I think it's the way of indicating whether this will be a good investment or not without kind of the bandwidth rules around it. Yeah. And it's also a long-term approach, right? This is not two-year, four-year cycle. So it's it's awful. Um, I do believe in the long-term things will sort of write themselves, but wow. I mean, really. So, uh, well, kudos to you for navigating those waters for both your own business. Again, it's not easy. And um, you have to collaborate with your investors as well. So when you talk to your and see what what are they looking for, and then what are your employees looking for? I think these things are all related, and you have to take that all into consideration. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on the Caring Economy, we have Peg McGetrick with us. She is a, a board member at Save the Children and a very successful finance expert. Peg, can you tell me from the domestic to the international, how did you get involved with the international arm of Save the Children, which I believe was English founded originally anyway? Yes. The the original founder of Save the Children a little over a hundred years ago was Eglantine Jeb, and it was after World War I. And she saw these, these horribly impoverished and starving children in Europe that were stuck behind what were enemy lines in the past. And when the war was over, she wanted to bring them to England and to help them. And she basically did that, which was really tough at the time because people were not that interested in helping. But she created this organization and then it grew over the hundred years. Um, About, I think it was about 10 years ago, there were all these Save the Children's around the world. There might be like three of them in Nigeria and they didn't even know each other, but they were called Save the Children. So there was this movement within the the disparate uh, parts of what was eventually going to become the Federation that decided to create an international group that would have leadership. And so that became um, Save the Children International. I started on the board of Save US, chairing the finance committee. Save US has three representatives on the board of Save International. And so I was asked to join as one of the three representatives, whereas you mentioned, I'm chair of the audit and risk which is more about risk than audit. I thought it was going to be finance, but actually it's risk, risk. And it's really intense work. And they are doing incredible stuff around the world. Can you give us some examples? I have traveled to places I never expected to go to. I've been to to Bangladesh uh, in 2017, one of my first trips. I went to Cox's Bazaar, where the Rohingya people are. So these are the people that were forced out of Myanmar, that were persecuted, murdered, chased away. And they are all in this very narrow strip of land called Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. Bangladesh being already a very poor country who is taking these people in. Save the Children is there working with, um, you know, helping with education and with medical, et cetera. I've been to Ethiopia, to the border of Somalia to see what's what the impact of climate 
an extraordinary thing to see these people that have been herders for generations and generations, all of their animals have died. They're gone. There is no water. Um, They're now living in refugee camps. They're not even counted as refugees because technically they aren't. They're still on their own lands. I I actually was supposed to go to Afghanistan with the chief executive of uh, SAVE in March. And that was my part of the trip was canceled last minute because of COVID related things. We're, we are everywhere. We're in Yemen, we're in South Sudan, we're, we're everywhere. Yeah. And, and help our listeners understand if you can, I, I don't want to say competitors, but how do you compare yourself or contrast yourself with say UNICEF or UNAID or. We work as partners with most of those other INGOs as well, because we each have uh, areas of expertise and and it's really important and this is something the board focuses on a lot not to recreate the wheel but to work with and not only work with the ingo partners but on on the ground to make sure you, you you're working with people and and empowering the people who are in the communities and that's one of our biggest focuses now is hiring there letting things run and and being organized within the communities it has much better and greater impact we also are very involved in the U.S. We're in rural America. We do Head Start. You know, you tend to talk about places like, you know, South Sudan or or Bangladesh, but we are really big in in very um, non-urban, so, so uh, rural America. Mm-hmm. A lot of poverty, a lot of drugs. Um, we're out there, you know, with education. During COVID, we use school buses and we're dropping off backpacks of food. A lot of these kids were not being fed. They were being fed at school, helping bring books around. That's a big part. One of our board members is Jennifer Garner, and she's been unbelievable in in talking about rural America and what Save the Children does there. I wonder if you can compare and contrast your fellow board members, say, at an international NGO versus a U.S. NGO. I would think stereotypically that it's, you know, people of means who are in the U.S. boards and maybe in some of the non-U.S. it's more people who are doers in the field, but I don't know that. That actually is about right. The U.S. board is significantly larger than the international board. We have about 30 people and it's, again, it's extremely diverse, both in socioeconomic, every every kind of diverse factor you can think of, everything, and, and everyone brings something different to the organization um and it's really useful from that point of view we've got we've got ceos of major companies mary dillon from ulta beauty she's she's now moved on to a different organization and she just left the board from from that to people who run their own um nonprofits and just have insight from that area so on the international board we do have more representation from the places we serve so from africa from india um, and it's, so it's diverse from that point of view and the expertise does seem to be more, um, related to other nonprofit organizations. Uh, and just as a, a not so subtle pitch, where should people reach out if they want to support or get to know more about Save the Children? Well, they have a great website and there's all the, you know, click here for donations. Uh, what I do, uh, for my donation dollars for Save is I, I, go to the Children's Emergency Fund because I've seen the way they deploy this money. And it's amazing. I mean, we Save the Children and so many other INGOs have gotten a huge amount of money for the Ukraine effort. And it's been amazing. And we have a ton of people that are working in Romania and, and Ukraine and all around and providing uh, all kinds of services there. 
But what I am really impressed with is when people understand that SAFE knows how to deploy this, this money in the most efficient and effective ways, that I leave it to them. So I donate to the, the Children's Emergency Fund. Um, right now we're down in Florida. We are, you know, we have a group of people that immediately were deployed there and they're experts. They know how to, they know how to handle emergencies, whether it's uh, earthquakes or if it's a, it's a hurricane, uh, we're there. We're providing, you know, diapers and uh, formula. We're also providing what they call child-friendly spaces. I have seen these around the world and it actually, at first I scratched my head like, well, what is this about? It's not really a school. It's an... It's a place for kids to be kids. So little babies to toddlers to seven-year-olds, they're there, they're playing, they're relaxed. Their parents get a break for a few hours. The parents who are under unbelievable stress, they're in refugee situations, et cetera. They get to drop their kids off and, and go and you know maybe relax or do something else that they need to do. And the children get to play and be kids. And I love it now. It's like one of my favorite things. And the, the Children's Fund is within Save the Children. Yeah, the Children's Emergency Fund is, the CEF we call it, is within Save the Children. Let's take it to the more broad uh, civic engagement writ large. Are, what's, what's your observation? Let's stick with the U.S. for now. Um, you know, we've read books like Bowling Alone and stories for over a decade now about how it's in decline. People are not showing up for their PTAs or Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts coaching Little League. What's your assessment of America right now in civic engagement? I think we can all rally around things as long as it doesn't get politicized. And that's that's a big as long as. I mean, who doesn't want to help people who've just been through a horrific hurricane experience? Um, who, who don't want to help children in rural America who aren't being fed and aren't being cared for? I mean, you'd be a monster not wanting to do that. So I think we can all agree that these are needs that need to be met. And that's where we try to focus, you know, as Save the Children, we try to be, we try to stand back. We have this organization within SAVE called SCAN, that's Save the Children Action Network, which uh, is, is a, Mark Shriver runs that. And, and he's a little more involved on the political side. And he's, he's on the Hill talking to both sides uh, and he's doing his best to, you know, basically say, we've got children that need help. You've got to put aside your politics and do it. I've often thought that with CSR, corporate social responsibility, brands that get behind uh, issues of the day, um, not only is it good for the communities, for their stakeholders, but it's also a way to sometimes get an employee out to volunteer and develop his or her leadership skills without a promotion or salary increase or anything like that. But um, that said, are there certain brands that you want to give a shout out to that Bulgari, the big, you know, jewelry. fabulous luxury jewelry, they have been giving away every Mother's Day. They give away their profits to save the children. It's so many millions of dollars. It's incredible. And you you barely ever hear about that. Um, Ulta Beauty has been a huge backer of Save the Children. Chobani, he's been like big. Awesome. Gabrielle Hurst with her brands, both Chloe and Gabrielle Hurst brand you know, has done huge giveaways and supported um, Save the Children. We have a lot. And I, Mattel is one of them. And, and I think you're really right. And you're really onto something. Corporate social responsibility is getting bigger and bigger. Hopefully the C-suite wants to go there for the right reasons. But even if they don't, they're being dragged there by their employees, by their shareholders, really? by their customers. And it's really working. Yeah. Even though we get charges of wokeism, it, I, 
again, I take the long view. I think if you're on the right side of history, you're there to try and help your fellow human being. Absolutely. That be? So um, do you, you have children of your own, two sons, I believe? I do. Have you, how have you inculcated these values of empathy or service with them? Well, I have dragged them along on many, many of my trips. <laughs> so they have been there. You know, when they were younger, they came to pretty posh hotels and because I'd be in Tokyo or London or something for my for that work. But I really wanted to open up the world to them and get them to see, you know, beyond our borders and to see how other people live. And that's been a big part of um, what I do with bringing them on the travels. But they've also come on my trips with, say, the children. Um, I think my very first trip was to Kenyatta, northern Kenya, where, again, huge drought. And we were trying, say the children was trying out this new uh, it's not new anymore, but back then it was new of of actually just giving um, cash vouchers to people mm -hmm. instead of goods and services, just saying, here, go spend what you need. And that's worked out incredibly well. And it, it, just seeing how people in a community, if they all don't get the cash vouchers, which they usually don't, they share them amongst themselves. And it's wonderful to see. So my older son came with me to see that and he, you know, got involved and in, he's now, he does video editing for Save sometimes. And he, he's always been quite helpful. He, he helped set up the room a little bit before we did this today. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, you know, again, I think people have to find, young people have to find their own passions and they have to find their own direction. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of set things up, but it's really up to the individual. Yeah, I also think that these younger generation, they they know the technologies like the TikTok. And I happen to be a fan of TikTok, but I do think that it's a we can help each other, right? They know new technologies can help us get the message out, find new channels and resonate in a way that's just as authentic, if not more. But uh, I, I'm glad to hear that they're engaged as well. I wonder as a, as a last question, Peg, if you might have any pearls of wisdom you want to give to either these young kids who are starting out in their careers or even those who are maybe disrupted in their 50s or 60s in corporate life. I would say to the young people, don't think that every decision you make is really important about your career. I mean, you are going to have multiple, hopefully you'll have a more interesting life if you have multiple careers. You know, don't think like, God, I've got to get this right. I've got to pick the you know, right job. It's going to be the direction. Pick the right spouse, I would say. That's really important. But, you know, when it comes to your career, be flexible, be open, try different things. It was Plutarch, you know, one of the great uh, Greek philosophers. The mind is not a vessel to be filled. It's a fire to be kindled. And I think that's so true. It's like, I think we're taught in school, like you have to, you know, they're teaching to the test or, you know, we have to learn something for this class and, and then you like throw it away. You know, that's not the way to think about like lifelong learning. And I think for all of us, whether we're young or we're old, you know, just be curious, let your curiosity run rampant, follow, follow the rabbit holes, you know, see what's out there and don't feel constricted by or or worried about making the wrong choice you can you can always change yeah well said it's another reason to get involved in volunteering to get into a analog world instead of living in a digital world when you learn eye contact and to see another person literally it can only make you more human so uh, i i completely agree with you margaret aka peg mcketrick thank you so much for joining us today on the caring economy to talk about your work with save the children 
and a stellar career in finance. I hope you'll come back and look follow, forward to following you and Save the Children. Thank you for the work you're doing. It's great. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.